We are in the second to last sermon today in the book of Romans. And so it's a milestone for us as we come to the end of this powerful, powerful um, theological treatise by Paul. This is clearly Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans. And it is, it is his most theological or systematic, if you can put it that way, expression of his theology. It's not a systematic theology in the way that we think of today, but it is clearly Paul's sort of most, his most systematic formulation of what he understands the gospel to be. And I don't know that I have fully done the book of Romans justice, but uh, we, have, we have learned a lot. And we've covered a lot of ground in the last 10 months. So it's taken us 10 months by the time we get to next Sunday. I think it'll be our, our last um, Sunday in Romans, a full 10 months to work through the book of Romans. Now, some preachers have taken 20 years to do that. I think that's a bit excessive. Um, and we don't know, I don't know yet, I'm praying, what our next series will be. But we won't start that until the beginning of the year when we finish Romans at the end of October, we're coming into sort of uh, um, the month of November, and there's Thanksgiving, and then we have Advent and Christmas and those things in December, so we will not officially start a new series until January. Uh, And for those of you who are watching at home also, um, I think a a lot of it has been recorded, if not on our website and podcast, um, on our YouTube page, and... uh, We also had a Vimeo page, but we'll try to organize that as we close out the year and and sort of get some of that, uh, some of those sermons and put more of that stuff on our website. But we are in Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila and my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Father, now we pray that you would illuminate this text before us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and may we be transformed by its truth. Your word is truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible, we believe, of course, is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And as such, it has authority for our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16, most of you know it. If you don't, you should remember this passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Not some, but all. Which means that the words of Paul the Apostle are just as authoritative as the words of Jesus. The words of Peter, the words of John, are just as authoritative for our lives as the words of Jesus himself. There is no part of the word that we can just ignore. John Chrysostom, that famous preacher, early in church history said, we should care even about the little fragments For it is possible, even from a list of names, to find great treasure. As we read through that list, two things become apparent. And the first is that Paul had this immense missionary heart which overflowed with personal love for other people. Paul had a love for people that caused him to deeply care about them and remember their names. I used to be terrible with names. I used to say things like, well, I'm just bad with names and sort of get myself off the hook for not remembering people. But in reality, I realized that I wasn't bad with names. I was bad with caring about people. The more you actually love and care for people, the easier it'll be to remember their names. So you don't need to pray, God, help my memory. You need to say, Lord, help me to care more about people. It's instructive for us that Jesus remembers and records our names. Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white with white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and his angels. The other thing we see as we read through these names is that otherwise obscure and unknown early Christians are etched for all history for the millions and billions of believers that would come after and read the book of Romans. In other words, imagine if the great apostle Paul in the first century wrote your name in one of his epistles to be read and known for centuries, millennia to come. That's essentially what we have here in this list of names. There are 33 names here, and 24 were in Rome, 17 men and 7 women, and there are two households. And they demonstrate, as I mentioned a minute ago, Paul's huge heart for people. It shows that he maintained a remarkable amount of 
love and affectionate relationships. He knew a lot of people, and he knew a lot of people well, and he loved a lot of people, and he cared for a lot of people. And when you read through that list, you can't help but to realize that he worked closely over the decades with many of these people. He knew these people intimately. So with that in mind, I want to focus this morning, not on every person on the list, but four people. We have a slide. Phoebe, a servant of the church, Prisca and Aquila, who Paul says risked their necks for my life, and Apelles, who is tested and approved in Christ. I just want to focus on these four people because I, I couldn't go through all of the names in the time we had, but these were those who sort of jumped out at me, and I think we can be edified a little bit by talking about these people that meant so much to Paul, the apostle. So verses one and two give us Paul's, we have a slide here, commendation of Phoebe, verses one and two, and this is what Paul says. He starts off this list of names by talking about a woman. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. Now Phoebe isn't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's clear that she is a prominent member of the church at Centrea. And Centrea was a coastal town just south of Corinth in modern-day Turkey. In those days, it was a part of Greece. And Phoebe was actively involved in ministry. She was probably the person that actually carried Paul's letter to the Romans to Rome. She had some business there. She's a servant or a diaconus of the church. You may recognize that word, which is where we get the word deacon from. But it can be used, the word diakonos can be used to describe sort of like an adjective of someone who serves, sort of a generic term for a servant, someone who serves in the church. Or it can be used to describe an official title or an office. So Paul could simply be highlighting the fact that she served in the church or that she was an actual deaconess. In fact, some theologians translate it just that way. And there's a lively debate, of course, as to whether the early church had female deacons or deaconesses. The word diaconus does not, in most New Testament uses, refer to the office of a deacon. However, there have been many conservative theologians that advocated for female deacons. Calvin was one of them, Benjamin Warfield was another, and Edmund Clowney all believed that women held that office. Calvin said that Paul commended Phoebe on account of her office and directed his readers to honor all who, quote, hold public office. In the same paragraph, however, Calvin calls Phoebe a helper and an assistant of the church. Calvin had deaconesses in Geneva, but he limited their role to care for the poor. So either way, whichever side you come down on the issue, we need to realize that deacons, then and now, aren't teachers and pastors and preachers, but theirs was the ministry of mercy and the ministry of compassion. Phoebe not only served the church, but she was its patron or patroness. Paul says 
in the next slide here, be a benefit for her, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. She was a wealthy woman who supported Paul in the church financially, which means she would have frequently underwritten the costs of ministry. You know, we've had people here in this congregation as well who have come to myself and the elders privately and said, after we have announced some ministry initiative that would have some cost to it, they have come privately and said, I want to cover the cost of that ministry need. And people are still doing that today. What's interesting about Phoebe is the fact that she's at the top of the list ought to tell you that Paul is no misogynist. Paul somehow gets accused for like not liking women by some people. But Paul is no misogynist. I mean, you know, at the top of this list of, of names, he mentions this woman, Phoebe, who he has deep admiration and respect for and has clearly been a blessing to his ministry and the work of the gospel going forward. Paul values women's gifts and the role that they play in the church. Secondly, the second thing I want us to see about this list as we move on from Phoebe is Paul greets his friends and the most prominent of the list of names after this is Prisca and Aquila. And he says in verses three and four, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, you should highlight that. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you should you know, underline it or highlight it somehow. That phrase has so much behind it. They risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, when we ask the question, how was it that Paul knew so many Roman Christians because Paul had never been to Rome. He had never visited the church in Rome. And isn't that interesting that he writes this magnificent letter to the Romans and he's never even been there. But he knows many of them. How does he know so many of them? Well, we realize that Paul has encountered many of the Roman Christians through his travels over the decades. He's encountered them, and believe it or not, in the ancient Mediterranean world, travel was quite, quite common. People would you know, go from Rome to a city you know, in, in, uh, in Israel and Syria and Greece, and people traveled quite frequently. They traveled for work. And Prisca and Aquila are a case in point of people that Paul met during his travels. Now, this is the same Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18. And the New Testament tells us that Aquila, the husband, came from Pontus on the southern shore of the Black Sea, and that they lived in Italy until Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49. I've mentioned this several times as we've moved through Romans about the sort of displacement of the Jewish believers from Rome and then five years later them coming back. Well, some of the Jewish Christians that were displaced by Claudius the emperor in AD 49 
were Aquila and Priscilla. And as they resettled in uh, Corinth, they encountered Paul, and Paul not only lived with them, but he worked with them. They shared the same trade. They were all tent makers. And so they worked in ministry, but they also worked in a vocation. And I don't know that it was sort of the manual labor thing to do, or maybe people were skilled tent makers like masons are today, where it may be physical labor, but it takes someone very skilled to do it. But Paul worked with these people and became very close with them. And later, all three of them, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, traveled to Ephesus, which is perhaps where they risked their necks for his life. Now, many times Paul came close to death, and if, you, if you've read the New Testament, you've read especially the letters of Paul, Paul talks about the dangers that he experienced over the years preaching the gospel of Christ. And once he was stoned, another time he was flogged on two separate occasions. Several times he was beaten within an inch of his life. He was once almost killed by a mob in Ephesus. And another time, he had to be lowered down from a window in a basket to avoid being arrested by a governor in Syria. Now, we don't know where Aquila and Priscilla risked their necks, but perhaps it was during the riot in Ephesus recorded in Acts chapter 19. But Paul was extremely thankful, and the way he thought about these people, I would imagine they were probably close in age, but the way he saw them were they were peers. They were people who enabled and empowered his ministry. And if you can think about it like this for a moment, Paul, who has this amazing ministry, sees other people as peers in ministry who they themselves, in and of their own right, have very powerful ministries. Now, they may have not written epistles and letters like Paul did, so we don't remember these people the same way, but Paul, his sort of shot-out list here, is a way of saying, it's not just my ministry that matters. It's the ministry of these people who have served Christ and sacrificed their lives. And I just want to say that to you as a pastor this morning. As I look out on all of you and, and the lives, and as I've gotten to know you over the years, I stand in sort of humble awe of the sacrifices that you've all made to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I ever sort of wrote some type of magnum opus letter, I'd give a shout out to all of you too. Because my own ministry would not be possible without the support, prayer, and sacrifice of each one of you. Now what can we learn from Paul's greeting to them? Well, we learned that the apostles were aided and enabled to spread the gospel through the faithful participation and financial support and sacrifice of regular Christians. Regular Christians, everyday Christians just like you. In Luke 16, Jesus says, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. It's a cryptic and bizarre statement by Jesus, but we covered that passage when we were preaching through the book of Luke several years ago. And the idea behind it 
is the resources you've ha- you have, which money itself is not righteous or unrighteous, but the resources you have, you can use to build up the kingdom. And you can use to bless people who Jesus says will welcome you into eternal dwellings one day. In other words, when you get to heaven, the people that you have supported and loved and given to and the causes you've given to will be rewards welcome you, welcoming you in heaven. In other words, what we have, we can use for the kingdom. So don't ever say, God can't use me, or I have nothing to offer. If God has given you abilities, use them to serve others. If God has given you possessions, share them with the saints. If God has given you means, spend your means on kingdom causes. And then finally, Paul mentions someone with no other reference or description except that he's been tested and approved by Christ. This is our next slide. His greeting to Apelles. Greet Apelles, who is tested and approved in Christ. Now, no commentary told me that I should focus on this person. But when I read it, I thought to myself, tested and approved in Christ. Boy, I would hope that they would put that on my gravestone. Here lies Jordan Evan Dayub, tested and approved in Christ. What a statement for someone who is otherwise obscure and unknown. He's mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament, but Paul, this person, has made such an impact on Paul that Paul makes this statement. And it's possible that Paul saw something that Apelles went through, some type of testing or trial or suffering or tribulation, and in his mind, this person has been tested. He's been proven. He's been tried in the fire and stands approved by Jesus himself. When we're close to each other like that, we bear witness to one another's hardships, and suffering. You know, um, with the advent of social media and our smartphones, we are becoming more isolated. We are connected to more people, but we are actually less social than we've ever been. And I just want to say, like, don't suffer alone, because the very thing that the church is meant for is to be a community of people bearing one another's burdens. And this is why I say all the time that you cannot really relate to God or be connected to God without the church. This idea that if you pray and read your Bible, you can sort of, you know, like not have a church home or just be in isolation and you're good with God, like that frustrates the heart of God, I believe, because God's like, you just don't get it. Like I've given you a whole community to support you and help sanctify you and to grow you in the love of Christ and you're completely neglecting that. I'm not talking to anyone here in particular. I'm just, I'm thinking about sort of the modern age we live in where because, I don't have my phone on me, but because we can access like, like awesome worship music and like good preaching and teaching on our, on our smartphones, we just think, yeah, I'm good. I just wanna say, no, you're not. 
You need the people of God. I need the people of God. And Paul needed the people of God. This list is a demonstration that for all of Paul's sufferings, he was so grateful that he had a community of people to fellowship with and to pray for him and to be close with and bear one another's burdens. And not only Paul bore witness to Apelles' testing and trial, we don't know what it is, but Apelles and these other people bore witness to Paul's suffering as well. And he didn't hide his suffering like we are prone to do today. We are, for some reason, so you know, averse to being vulnerable with each other. We don't want to share the hardships with one another. As, you know, I don't know, maybe we think, well, we're putting, yeah, I don't want it to be a burden. I mean, that's exactly what the Bible says. Share your burdens with one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul is not some, you know, isolated, you know, I can do it on my own, you know, tough guy. He doesn't care that people know how hard his life has been. He shares the trials and the hardships. I mean, there, is, there was one point where Paul essentially, I interpret it this way, says he was almost suicidal. He said that the work of ministry that had been given was so hard that they despaired of life itself. I mean, those are Paul's words. Now, we, don't, we today, we, we don't want people to think that we, we struggle like that. But I'm telling you that God has given us a means to unload your burdens with one another in the church. Don't suffer alone. So when we're close to each other, like Paul and Apelles, we bear one another's burdens. We bear witness to each other's suffering. And it does something to us. It makes us better people. When I see the suffering of my brother or sister, I cannot just live my own life and my own, you know, with my fingers and my ears, la, 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 my life is fine. You, I, you're presented with this choice, this fork in the road to say, am I going to love this person and sort of enter in, or am I going to ignore them? When we are close to one another, and I say that to say, like, you know, we all could be closer. And that's hard, right, in this COVID season to be close but we can maybe need to check on each other all the more. So maybe if you haven't called somebody in the past couple weeks, you should. Maybe look out in the congregation or think about those who are watching at home and think about someone you haven't heard from in a while and get their information and reach out and be close to them in whatever way you can. And when we behold the suffering of our brother and sister, we're also encouraged by their perseverance and faith. Because when you see people overcoming their challenges and their trials and still having faith in Christ, you know what it does? It chastises you. As you maybe feel sorry for yourself or think, you know, struggle with your own doubts and you see other people with more heavier burdens than you believing in the Lord and still trusting, it sort of humbles you and sometimes it shames you a little bit because you think, wow, this person has gone through so much. That's what I think Paul is saying about Apelles. Apelles, greet Apelles. He is tested and approved in Christ. That kind of vulnerability, you know, doesn't happen if you're the type of person who refuses to be vulnerable. And sometimes it might think that, well, my life is too important. My reputation is tied to my vocation and my career. I can't let people know I struggle with X, Y, or Z. 
People have to see me as being you know, stable and steady and successful and having it all together. But you know, if you think that way, it'll be really hard to be transparent, and not only will you not be transparent, but it'll be hard to you to bear the burdens of other people, right? So we don't wanna say that's okay for other people, but I don't want people to think I'm weak or needy. I just wanna say this, neediness is not a result of the fall. Do you know that? God creates Adam, sees that he is alone, and it is not good. Paul, God says, this man needs someone. He needs a woman. It is not a deficiency of our fallen nature. We need each other. And if you don't recognize that, you will suffer under the weight of that isolation and mistaken theology, thinking that it's not good to need other people. And I just want to say it's just the opposite. It is not good not to need other people. It is not a result of the fall. It is the way we are created. We are the most social animals in all of the world. We're meant to have fellowship and be in covenant with one another. We're meant to connect with other people. And sometimes some of our personality, sort of like intrinsic personality, militates against that. Maybe we are just naturally sort of antisocial. We isolate, we enclose, we feel more comfortable with ourselves. And so for those of you who feel that way, you have to try hard and push in the opposite direction. But if you want people to open up to you, you have to lead by example. If you want people to be close to you and open up, you have to lead by example. And when they do, you have to reciprocate. Paul wasn't self-protective. He didn't worry about his reputation. He didn't care if people knew all his dirty laundry. His self-doubt, his sins, his suffering, his hardship and need. Paul, one of the greatest intellects, a master of theology, was a caring man who loved people. And now if you've read Paul and think that he's a cold theologian, you're not really reading him. This is a man with a huge missionary heart, a huge heart and affection for other people. And he wanted information about people because he wanted to know about their status and how he could love them. This list of names, over 30 in number, were people Paul wanted to keep in touch with. You know, it takes a lot of energy to keep in touch with people, right? One of the reasons why we lose touch with people is because it's easier, right? It's easier to lose touch with people. Somebody moves, you know, their life, they're doing one thing, you're doing another. It takes a lot of work. I mean, you can think about Paul sitting, writing this, saying, oh, Apelles, Oh, Rufus and his mother. Oh, boy, she's, boy, she really cared for me. I mean, it took time for him to write these names out and to think of these people. What about Patrobus? How is Hermes and where is he now? Is he still walking in faith? What can I pray for? Do you have a loving heart for others? I don't just mean you feel warm feelings towards other people, but how do you show it? Right? Love is an action. It's not just an emotion. Do you let other people in? Do you let them love you back by sharing your life with them and trials and sufferings? This is also the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for this demonstration of love and care as we peer into the heart of the apostle, 
We see someone who loved so many people and over the years expanded his ability to love as he was transformed from a persecutor of the church who thought by killing Christians he'd be doing God a favor and now all these years later finds himself as he writes this letter to the Roman Christians so swelled up with love and care for so many people. Would, O oh God, that we also would love one another. Would, O oh God, that we would care for those who we've not seen and reach out to them and check in on them as an expression of the love of Jesus. We're reminded this morning, O oh God, that our names are not forgotten, but written in the Lamb's book of life. And it is our names you, O oh God, know, because Christ has professed them before you and the angels. We thank you for this, this salvation that is undeserved, but we received by grace. Oh God, help us to walk in love and to walk in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.